Well, good morning again and welcome to Grace Bible Church Gainesville. So thankful that you could be here. I hope and pray that your, your week has been encouraging to you. Over these past few weeks, I've been privileged as now being able to be more freed up. I've been privileged to meet with many of our folks in one-on-one discussions. <clears throat> in these conversations, I've tried to listen to each person and hear their, the concerns of their heart. I've also endeavored, hopefully, to provide wisdom for their walk with Christ based on specific, their specific situations. And in, but in, in these meetings, and here's my point this morning, in these meetings, I've been struck by the need for biblical wisdom to inform our Christian lives. Without fully recognizing it, I hope that you realize that we tend to live according to worldly wisdom. Wisdom which is from below, that not from above. If you were to ask me to describe our culture in, the, in one word, I think I would say impulsive would be a good description. The dictionary defines an impulse as a sudden, spontaneous inclination or incitement to some unusual or usually unpremeditated action. Therefore, impulsive means, quite simply, to act on impulse or act without thinking things through. This tendency toward impulsive worldliness is not limited to a few foolish folks as we might suppose so if i met with you in the past couple of weeks don't think that i'm just laying this on you this is a general tendency that i see the battle against these tendencies in my own life and in every life of every believer here the 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 battle against those tendencies and to live according to the wisdom of god is a very constant battle it's never-ending even for the wisest and the godliness, godliest among us, we need to continually bring it back, bring our lives back into the light of the Word of God. The walk of wisdom is an arduous battle, which takes great courage, but it's a battle we must fight. But as with any good approach to battle, we must have a plan. We must have a strategy to win that battle. But in the words of Mike Tyson... The theologian Mike Tyson, just kidding, the boxer Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan till they get punched in the mouth. Think about that. That's a pretty profound quote. I mean, he's obviously talking about boxing, but it, it rings true in our lives, right? We all have a plan until we get punched in the mouth. Uh, we, uh, we all know what to do until life hits us hard. Our plans then tend to change when the going gets tough, do they not? But how do we guard against slipping back into our former ways of thinking and former ways of life? Well, we need biblical strategies. Biblical strategies we can rely upon, especially when life gets tough. Now, you might be asking, can the Bible really help me in this way? Can the Bible really help me live more wisely as I face today's modern world? I mean, wasn't it written 2,000 years ago? Will the Bible's wisdom still work for us today considering its complications, the world's complications, that is? And then how, how does my personal walk of, of wisdom or lack thereof affect the church or even my family? Well, today we're going to begin the study to study the walk of wisdom, which is the fifth of the five walk statements in this passage, which, which started in, or in the last three chapters, that is, which started in 4.1 and stretches all the way to chapter 6, the end of chapter 6. Now, in this passage that we're starting today, starting in 5.15, it stretches all the way to 6.22. And in this passage, Paul gives the biblical strategies for walking in wisdom. And we would do well, beloved, to listen. Now, as, I, as we study... Over the next few weeks, these verses, I believe we will find the answers we need to these questions, and we will find even more there. Let me pray for the sermon this morning and for its reception, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. Father, pray for the sermon, pray for our time, pray for the hearts of the listener, pray for the heart of the the preacher that you would be with us, your Holy Spirit would move in this room so that, we might, so that I might be clear preaching 
and that the receiver, the one listening, would be able to understand and that you would move in their heart to act upon what they hear. Father, we know that your word will not return void. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read our passage of Scripture, and as I turn to it, I want to remind you that we here at Grace Bible Church are committed to expository preaching. We believe the preaching of, of God's Word is what will cause true and lasting eternal change in your heart. Starting in verse 15, I'm just going to read verse 15 through 21. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We've all seen the videos. The man, usually the man, women live longer, so they don't do these things. The man's doing something completely stupid and paying the price for their actions. For some reason, it's the skateboard videos which draw my attention. You know the videos where they ride a rail to the bottom or jump off some massive wall? There are a couple of videos that have stood out uh, over time to me. One was this young man riding a skateboard being pulled along by a truck. It would, not, it would not surprise me if I found out the truck was actually going 50 miles an hour. I mean, this thing was really moving. Uh, the, the video was filmed at night, but it was lit by streetlights, and the, the truck was actually careening across what looked to be a plaza area made with bricks and a fountain. And when it pulled sharply away in the video, you saw the headlights go away, it revealed a skateboarder heading for some massive stairs. His intent was to jump the stairs, of course, and I, I can't even say how high the stairs were, but I mean, he needed a lot of speed to clear the stairs. But I can say that he actually made the jump and he even landed the skateboard. It was a, an amazing feat, except when he landed, let's just say one of his bones became two. Yeah. Another video that I remember is of a young man who jumped a skateboard off a large retaining wall into the concrete below. Let's just say he didn't land the skateboard very well. Now, most of us would agree that these stunts were completely unwise, right? You don't jump off of 25-foot walls, and you don't jump over, take, you know, behind a truck at 50 miles per hour down over a, over a set of stairs. It's just not a, a great idea. You're not going to live very long if you continue to do those things. Now, I recognize that some of you, especially the younger men, might think that these things are really cool, and I say that I get it. I mean, I've I watched the videos. Yet, in, even in its coolness, it would be hard to argue the wisdom of these activities. Now, there may be a few, including my beautiful wife sitting here, who are saying, well, I think it's unwise to even waste your time watching this stupidity. I think I can, I can hear her actually saying that in, in my mind. Yet, you know what? I can't argue that it is completely a complete waste of time to watch people doing stupid stuff to hurt themselves. But friends, I, I hope these lighthearted examples help us highlight the passage today. We live in days of great distraction. There are millions of videos and other enticements which can distract us. There are billion-dollar entertainment in businesses that are built for the purpose of Distraction. Did you know that Disney's market value is greater than the GDP of, the, of at least a couple of African countries? I didn't go through all of it to look, but I did double-check a couple of them. The South Sudan has 11 million people, and the, the yearly production of their people is similar to the value of just one entertainment company. Just think about that. Just one entertainment company. I don't think we realize how, just how distracted we are by amusement. I was talking to a fellow pastor earlier this week. He said that 25 years ago, we considered regular attenders being those who came to church three or four Sundays a month. 
Today, in his estimation, regular attenders, people who we would consider regular attenders, show up about twice a month at that. They simply have better things to do with their time. Church, we must carefully regard all that we do considering its eternal value. I'm thankful for the common grace of having uh, entertainment. I'm thankful for those things. Don't get me wrong, I love The Mandalorian. And I love other, other television shows. But if that's all I'm doing to spend my time, if that's what I'm wrapped up in, I need to make sure that that's not what my life becomes about. I love sports as much as the next guy, but if sports are crowding out the more important things, then I need to reevaluate reevaluate my relationship with sports. For example, entertainment must never become primary in my life. Well, this morning we're going to begin the study of the fifth of five walk commands, as I said earlier, which provide the structure of Ephesians 4 through 6. Paul states the command to walk in wisdom in 5.15. And his explanation of how to accomplish this walk stretches for 27 verses all the way to 6.9. So it's a, a very large section of, of, of passage in his, in his uh, letter to the, to the church at Ephesus. Therefore, I suspect that we'll be studying this walk of wisdom for several weeks. Now, I've, I've titled my sermon, Living in Impulsive Times. Now, before we dive into the study, let me give you a brief context uh, of the structure, context of this passage and structure of this section. This is a again a new and significant section of Paul's letter, so we should invest the time to review the epistle and be reminded of Paul's purpose for writing it. He wrote the epistle, uh, the, the epistle to the church at Ephesus. He wrote it to encourage the saints at Ephesus to trust and Jesus' promise to build the church. Now, I have argued that Paul understood the importance of the church at Ephesus. I believe he recognized the strategic significance in protecting the doctrine of the early church, that is, the church at Ephesus being important to that aim. He also realized that Ephesus was key to spreading the gospel as the early church grew from Jerusalem in the east to Rome in the west. Ephesus formed a connector, if you will, from east to west and was the hub for the churches there in Asia Minor. So Paul wrote to urge them to consider all that God had done in saving them and placing them into the church. He also urged them to continue the ministry of the gospel despite the fact that he was in prison for preaching the gospel. Now, I believe the purpose can be best seen in how he structures the letter. He spends the first two chapters reminding the Ephesian church of, the, of the, their glorious, the glorious nature of salvation in Christ. Now, this is specifically seen in chapter 1, verse 1 through 14. He also reminds them of the glorious nature of God's purpose in calling them and placing them in the body of Christ. That is chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. He reminds them of the miraculous nature of their own salvation in Christ. That's chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And he also reminds them of the amazing fact that they were saved for the purpose of doing good works, prepared beforehand, bringing glory to to the Father. (coughs) That's chapter 2, verse 10. He reminds them in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, of the incredible truth that we are, as the church, We are a new humanity in Christ. Therefore, we've been brought together in Christ. There's no longer any Jew or Gentile. Jew and Gentile alike have been redeemed and made into a new man. And we are together being built into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's chapter 2, verse 22. (coughs) In chapter 3, he gave them the example of his own calling, to salvation on the road to Damascus. And he also reminded them that Christ has made him an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, the point there is Christ did this. Christ gave gave him the ministry of, of apostleship. Now, these examples from his own life powerfully demonstrated or modeled the truths of chapters 1 and 2. Now, church, we would do well 
we would do well to consider these reminders as well. As a church, we're studying this letter specifically, not just as an exercise of studying the Bible. We're studying this letter specifically to better understand Christ or Jesus' heart for His church. And we would do well as a church to remember what God has done in saving us, the miraculous salvation that we have been given. Each of you sitting here, each of you listening online, each of you have a unique story of salvation. God has brought you into into the church. He's, He's taken you out of the darkness and into the light of His glory. And we would, be, we would do well to be reminded of the power of God to save sinners, to make the dead rise, and the power of God which now works powerfully through you. Now, I've already said that our current passage is Paul's fifth and final walk command of chapters 4 through 6. Now, the, he, he structures this, starting in 4.1, Paul called the Ephesian church to the worthy walk. And, and so... I would argue that that command in 4.1 sets the theme for the last three chapters. As such, he gives a description of a walk that is worthy of the calling which he described in chapters 1-3. through This walk does not look like the Gentiles' walk, which is a walk of futility and darkness, a futility in their mind and as they, as they walk through darkness. But it is a walk of sacrificial love for God and for others. It is also a walk in in the light of Christ as we exhibit the fruit of the light, goodness and righteousness and truth. Finally, the worthy walk is a walk of wisdom, and that's what we've made it to today. This takes us all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. Now, to finish out the letter, in chapter 6, 10 through 17, Paul exhorts the church to be strong in the Lord. In light of everything he had said, in light of everything he said in this letter, he exerts, exhorts them to be strong and to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Because Paul knew the importance of the church at Ephesus, and he knew that the devil was moving against them so that they wouldn't be able to do the ministry that God had called them to do. And in 16, 18, 18 through 24, he insists that they pray for the ministry of the gospel that they pray diligently, and that they remain on alert as they pray for all the saints. Now let me give you the structure of our current passage. Structure is reflected in the outline, which we will use for the next couple of sermons, and you you can find that in your your bulletin. Uh, A title again, Living in in Impulsive Times. Paul gives an essential guardrail that will protect you from falling into the evil ways of the day. You must first regard your walk carefully. That's 5.15. Now, after that, he gives four strategies. And we won't see these today. We'll just hit on them here, but we won't get to them today. He gives four strategies for guarding your walk during these evil days. First, you must redeem your weeks closely. Second, you must recognize Yahweh's will conscientiously. Third, you must realize the Spirit's work consistently. And fourth, you must reflect your roles, your God-given roles, clearly. Those are the four strategies for walking in wisdom. Now, the final strategy, the number four, will form the heading for our study in 522-69, where Paul goes through each role, starting with the wives, then the husbands, and then he goes to the children, and then I think it, after he ends up with uh, slaves or, or, um, or employees in, in today's modern world. But today we're just going to look at one verse, 515. So I hope that that was helpful to get us to where we are and, and to get us to understand what, what Paul is trying to do. So let's pick up in 515 and look at this essential guardrail of protection Uh, You must regard your walk carefully. Look at your text. Paul gives a simple command. Therefore, verse 15, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, as we've said, this is an overarching command, uh, the overarching command of this particular passage. The word, therefore, as always, we have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? As always, it looks back at what has been stated to this point in the argument. It answers the question, so what? Now, in this case, I believe it's furthering Paul's argument of what the worthy walk looks like. Therefore, it's, a, it's another aspect of the worthy walk 
Again, which connects this verse to verse chapter 4, verse 1. Now here, Paul, here in this verse, 5.15, Paul calls the church to wisely regard your walk. He commands, be careful, be careful how you walk. Now, the NAS, which I use, is an interesting translation. There's actually a word in the Greek, which is, which is present in the Greek, that, but not brought out in the NAS. On the other hand, some of you have the ESV. Some of you might even have the New King James Version. Uh, but the ESV actually brings this word out. He says, look carefully, then how you walk. So the idea of the, the eyes, of the idea of watching, looking, while the New King James Version says, see then that you walk circumspectly. Now, I would argue that both of these translations help us understand Paul's exhortation. As Christians, as those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to live with our eyes wide open. We must be aware of the dangers which lurk around us. We must constantly evaluate our walk considering the hazards that are around us. When I traveled to Israel, our group traveled along the path from Jericho up to the Mount of Olives and into Jerusalem. Now, we actually drove it. We didn't walk it like they would have in Jesus' day. Uh, we stopped and looked, but we didn't, we didn't walk very far. But this is the route that Jesus described in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Even today, if you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, he was jumped and robbed. Uh, even today, the, the man was. Even today, this path of taken on foot is very steep and dangerous. But in Jesus' day, it was also full of other dangers, including robbers. You would have never walked this path without constantly and carefully evaluating your surroundings by having your eyes open, looking at your surroundings. It would have been incredibly foolish to bebop along with your head down and your eyes closed, oblivious to what's going on around you. According to Thomas Fuller, he says, the, the fool wonders, a wise man travels. Do you understand the distinction? A fool just wanders around and, and is not aware of what's going on, not prepared. A, a wise man travels. He's prepared for everything. The wise man has his head up, his eyes peeled. He's very aware of his surroundings to protect himself against the lurking dangers. Just think of, a, of the special ops soldier in enemy territory. He wouldn't last very long, right, if he, didn't, if he wasn't aware, if he didn't keep himself aware of what's going on. The enemy lurks, and the ambush could come at any time. He needs to be fully aware of this. Well, beloved, that's the picture of the, the Christian life. Uh, we need to be aware. We need to have our eyes open. We need to be prepared. That's what wisdom says. Now, the word translated carefully has the idea of accuracy. It could mean to have strict conformity to a, a standard involving both detail and completeness. As most of you know, my, son, my second son is a Marine. When he first returned home after his training, you could see the attention to detail that he had developed. Now, it went away pretty quick, but that's just the nature of young men. But in training, in training he had been held to a higher standard, and it showed especially in the first few days he was home. I think that's a good picture of how we should live our lives. We, we should conform to a standard of living which is beyond our natural inclinations. Our natural inclination is to be that bebopping guy that doesn't worry about anything, but that's not how we should live. Paul says, look at your text, that we should live not as unwise men, but as wise. Now, here Paul begins to give us the standard by which we live. The, the word translated unwise has the idea of one who lacks power, of, of proper discernment. You can simply say they're foolish. The New King James Version translates this word as fools. Therefore, as Christians, we must not live as fools, as unwise. Now, the Bible has much to say about the folly of the foolish. The Old Testament is full of references to, to foolish people, and especially in the book of Proverbs. We find that, first, that fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's Proverbs 1, 7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They act as though no one can teach them anything. Uh, the Christian can do this by refusing correction. 
or refusing, or refusing to sit under solid biblical instruction. Secondly, fools can't control their tongues. That's Proverbs 10, 18. He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. The believer who incessantly wags the tongue in gossip falls into this category of a fool. Third, fools love wickedness. Fools love wickedness. Proverbs 10.23 says, Doing wickedness is like sport to a fool, and so is wisdom to a man of understanding. Proverbs 13.19 says, Desire realized is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. So they find it as an abomination to turn away from evil. That's, isn't that amazing how the word puts that? But that's who a fool is. They love wickedness. Fourth, <clears throat> fools do harm to those around them. That's Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise. But the companion of fools, so the person who hangs out with fools, is probably a fool himself, but they will suffer harm. This verse is focused on friends, being friends with foolish people. You should repeat that, by the way, to your teenage children every day. They have it, our children have a tendency to want to hang out with fools. So we need to remind them that, that, that fools bring harm. This can also happen in the church when a, when a husband refuses to care for his wife or teach his children, or when the husband has ungodly pursuits. Many Christian marriages have been destroyed by foolish men. You must then be careful. I mean, I'm talking to the ladies but it's also, it can go the other way. You must be careful who you marry, because marrying a fool will bring harm upon you and your children. That's, just think about that. And you see these ladies do this over and over and over. They just jump from one fool to the next fool to the next fool. And their children are the ones suffering. Fifth, fools are arrogant and careless. That's Proverbs fourteen sixteen. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. When I was growing up, we had an acquaintance around our family who loved to drink and drive. He loved it. Back in the, back in the day, you could drink and drive, and the cops would just bring you home if they caught you. They might find you, but they, it's not like it is today where you lose your, half your wealth by one DUI. But in doing so, he destroyed several cars. He would wreck them because he was drunk. He was an arrogant and careless fool. Because fools are arrogant and careless. I think of the Christian who doesn't avoid evil but flirts with it. Now I'm sure we can glean more regarding the fool from the book of Proverbs, but I want to highlight one last description of the fool. Perhaps this is the granddaddy of them all. Sixth, Fools deny the existence of a holy God. That's Psalm 14.1. says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Beloved, those who say there is no God are, in fact, fools. In the words of Mr. T, I just, I, I did... Mike Tyson earlier. I'm going to do Mr. T now. He says, I pity the fool. This is actually real, by the way. This is actually a real quote. I pity the fool. The foot has, or the foot, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He actually said that, look at his Twitter feed. They shake their fist and proclaim there is no God, yet God can clearly be seen in all that has been made. Turn to Romans 1.18, where Paul, Paul will clearly show us the fate of the foolish. We've gone through this passage before, but I think it bears repeating, because we need to be reminded of the fate of those who do not, who suppress the truth. Of God, It says in verse 18, Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
According to Paul, these men are ungodly and they're unrighteous. And in their unrighteousness, in their desire for their ungodliness, they suppress the truth. They hold it down. They suppress the truth that has been clearly revealed. But their fate is to experience the wrath of God poured out from heaven against their ungodliness and unrighteousness. And in verse verse 19, he says, Paul tells us why they are condemned to suffer God's wrath. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been... Now it's interesting, His invisible attributes have been clearly seen. So we can't see God, right? But we can clearly see His handiwork. We can clearly see it in in creation, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. So they they knew that He created, but they suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. And so even though they knew Him, they didn't honor Him as the Creator nor give thanks to Him but they became futile in their speculations, and hear, hear this, their foolish heart was darkened, so that now they can't see. Now they can't understand the things of God. Professing to be wise, they, they profess to know, they profess to know things, they became what? Fools. Fools. Fools who exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of, in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. He's saying that instead of, instead of worshiping the Creator, what did they do? They worshiped the creation. And we see it even today, right? These people hugging trees and, and you know all these things that they do. They want to save the whales, but... I mean, I'm not against conservation, right? I mean, we as men, as people, need to conserve. But that's to the point of worship, of the creation. The foolish suppress the truth of God, and they worship the creation rather than the Creator. They profess to be wise, yet they are the greatest of fools. Jeremy Taylor, an English clergyman from the 1600s, eloquently states it this way. What can be more foolish than to think that all this rare fabric of heaven and earth could come by chance, when all the skill of art is not able to make an oyster. End quote. Think how foolish it is. Simple oyster. And we couldn't recreate it. They do all this in their unrighteousness. They are wicked, wicked men. They do not and they will not obey God. Albert Barnes says, There's nothing more foolish than an act of wickedness. There is no wisdom equal to that of obeying God. Yet their desires will be their undoing, right? They may shake their fist at God, but they face His wrath. Thomas Watson says, What fools are they who, for a drop of pleasure, drink a sea of wrath? for a drop, for a drop of temporal pleasure, fleeting, here today, gone tomorrow, pleasure. For that drop of pleasure, they'll drink a sea of wrath. Paul told the church at Ephesus, don't be like these men. They shake their fist at God. They live as if He doesn't exist. They go about their business as if there is no judgment to come. Now, here's the question you should be asking, because he's writing to Christians. Can a person who calls himself a Christian live like this? Well, in James 4, there's an interesting passage that I believe answers this question. You can turn over there if you'd like. James 4, 13, James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow you, you will go, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. So the picture here is of a man who chooses to live according to his own priorities. And his own priorities, his main concern 
is to engage in business and make money. That's what, he live, that's what he's living his life for. Now James says of this man, he says in verse 14, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. So you've boasted you're going to go do all this stuff, but you don't even know what it's going to be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now, in these verses, James reminds this man, this, this person who would live this way, that we must live as if we die, but not only must we live as if we are going to die, we need to live as if we're going to face judgment, even tomorrow, even in a moment's notice. And I can promise you, your money and your business won't help you then. When you stand before the throne of God, the, the judgment of God, your business and your money will not help you. Unless, of course, you use it for His kingdom. But even then, He provided it to you, so it's His. James continues in verse 16. He says, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Now, what did we say about the, arrogant, the foolish? They're arrogant, right? So he's telling these people, you're boasting in your arrogance. You're arrogant. You believe that you control your destiny. And he says all such boasting is evil. You know what James is really saying here? He's saying you are an arrogant fool. Your plans are evil because they... Now, it's not that the plans are evil necessarily. It's not, there's nothing wrong with going and doing business, right? There's nothing wrong with even making a profit. But what's arrogant is that they don't account for the existence of God. In other words, you might as well be an atheist because that's how you're living. You might as well be the Psalm 14.1 saying in your heart, there is no God. Then, then James adds this little gem in verse 17. He says this, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. You know what James is saying here? What he's saying here is what I just said, for first and foremost. There's nothing wrong in and of itself to go and do business and, and make a profit. But if it's your priority over things that, it, that you ought to be doing, then it becomes a problem. And I think that what's happening here is actually related to the, the message of James. But I, I think I can summarize it very quickly. He's saying, you know the Lord's priority concerning the brethren. He commands you to care for them, but you choose to live as fools, as if God doesn't exist and He won't judge you for your actions. You know what to do. You know how you should be living. And if you don't do it, you are in sin. That's what He's saying. Said another way, you call yourself a Christian, but you live as a practical atheist. And this is utter foolishness. Matthew Henry says, Those that disobey the commandments of God do so foolishly for themselves. Sin is folly, and sinners are the greatest fools. Friends, are you living in an unwise way? Are you living for yourself? <clears throat> only concerned for yourself to the point where you're harming, even harming others? Are you wandering aimlessly, carelessly through life as if nothing is serious? Do you despise correction when your brother comes alongside to help you see? Here's the big question, though. Do you call yourself a Christian yet live as if God and judgment don't exist? You know what you're doing, right? You know if that's the case. Are you calling yourself a Christian yet live as if you don't face tomorrow? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then you should reevaluate before it's too late. You need to pray to God for wisdom. According to James and James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You don't have to remain a fool. David says in Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. 
the testimony of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord in His Word is sure, making wise the simple. If you're a simple person, if you're unwise, you need to meditate on His Word. In the words of J. Vernon McGee, he says, You can believe a whole lot of foolish things, but God doesn't want you to do that. He wants your faith to rest upon the Word of God. Back in Ephesians 5.15, Paul says, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. But as wise men. We've already started down this road. If you want to walk as a truly wise person, then you will live in the light of God's presence. According to James, you will beg God for the wisdom you need to live. You will study and meditate on His Word. You will trust in His goodness to give it. But that begs the question, what is wisdom? Well, first, it's not knowledge. It doesn't, they don't equate. You can have a boatload of knowledge, yet not have any wisdom. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says that knowledge can puff us up. Make us think that we're all, you know, amazing and stuff. It's not that God is calling us to remain stupid, but He wants us to have wisdom in using the knowledge that we have. And we've all known the genius who's full of knowledge, but is a fool. People, the people that the world think is the most, the smartest people in the world, but they're fools because they say there's no God. No, simply having knowledge is not the same as truly having wisdom. So, what is wisdom? According to Charles Spurgeon, he says, "Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are the greater fools for it." Like I said, Carl Sagan might come to mind. There's no fool so great as a fool as a no, of a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. Now I would argue I don't take a I don't usually take exception to what Spurgeon says, but I would argue that true wisdom is knowing how to use the right knowledge. Simple knowledge is not enough. The best wisdom wisdom is given by God above for true insight into the nature of His plan. So we have to have knowledge of His plan. We need to have understanding of His plan. And wisdom is being able to live that out in our lives. Again, I believe James sheds further light on Paul's point in in Ephesians 5. He says in James 3.17, But the wisdom from above is first purer than peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, true biblical wisdom will ultimately result in the fruit of righteousness and peace. Yet, there's a wisdom which is from below, right? According to James, this wisdom is uh, not which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, and even demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. You see, this wisdom that is from below is a demonic wisdom which causes disorder in every evil thing. Clearly, we must avoid that type of worldly wisdom. And we must beg for God to give us Ask for God to give us the wisdom which is from above. Paul, back in Ephesus, calls for the church to avoid living as the unwise, but to live as wise men. Earlier in the letter to Ephesus, he prayed. He prayed for them. In verse 17, he prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. There, there you see it. The, this, this idea of knowledge of who the Lord is and His plan, and the idea of wisdom and being able to use that properly. He goes on in verse 18. This is chapter 1, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believes. 
earlier in, believe earlier in the in the sermon <clears throat> we saw that Paul used the first two chapters to remind them of the glorious nature of of salvation in Christ he wanted them to fully grasp the wisdom knowing the, the wisdom of God knowing the hope they had in Christ and this hope he knew wouldn't disappoint even as they faced dire circumstances, even as Paul himself was imprisoned. And he wanted this wisdom and, and this knowledge which is uh, from above to truly impact their day-to-day lives. He desired for them to live according to this incredible knowledge. And the more we the more they realized this truth in their life, the more likely they were to experience the surpassing greatness of his power. Think about that. The more they realized this truth, the truth of what Christ has accomplished, and the more they realized that, the more likely they were to experience the surpassing greatness of His power. That's the key. I mean, it's not... The power of God is not conjuring up stuff. It's not conjuring up, I mean, like speaking in tongues and all these things that, that are done in charismatic circles. That's not the power of God. The power of God is understanding what God is doing in this world right now through the church. Understanding what He has already done in your own life and saving you and taking you out of the darkness, and putting you in His light, taking you from the realm of the dead, and making you alive in Christ, taking you from this earthly existence, and placing you on the throne of God above, which, by the way, positionally, you are already there. He just wants you to live like that. He just wants you to live that way. And beloved, these truths have not changed. We are called to live according to these glorious truths. And if we know the truth and we refuse to live by the truth, we are nothing more than that fool who shakes his fists at God. We're living just the same way. If you're a Christian here today and you've walked in wisdom for many years, I'm incredibly thankful. Excel excel still more. Grab some young man or woman and teach them to do the same. If you're a Christian here today and yet your life is in shambles, you plainly, clearly are not walking in wisdom, might it be that you are living as a practical atheist? That you are not using the Word of God to shed light on your life to to bring you wisdom, and you're not living like that, therefore you're living as a fool. You are arrogant and you're careless. Your decisions and your lifestyle are bringing harm to those around you because of your refusal to live according to His wisdom. You hate correction and you fall into wickedness. If you're in that category, repent. Regard your walk carefully. Fervently ask God for the wisdom which is from above. Now, if you're an unbeliever here today, you the stuff is, you don't care. Maybe you live by a sense of duty or honor. You know, you have your honor code. I don't know how many, especially young men, they have their honor code, right? It's their standard they live by. Uh, uh, of course, it's, you know, it's kind of twisted and shaped the way they want it to be based on what's, what works for them. But it seems, you know, that, that honor code seems to, maybe it seems to be working for you. But if you're honest with yourself, you know there's no joy in it. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that stoicism seems to be rising in popularity among young men. It's ancient way of looking at life I, I can I can appreciate the focus on virtue but stoicism is ultimately an empty philosophy of man basically you you live by pure grit 
But that's wisdom from below. That's wisdom from below. It's not God's wisdom. Maybe you live with no code at all. Your life is a a complete mess. Again, I'm talking to the unbeliever. In either case, I, I beg you, I beg you to consider Christ. I beg you to come to Christ, who alone can save, who alone can give you the wisdom you need to live uh, this life. I beg you, don't cover, don't cover your heartache with drugs and alcohol. But come to Christ who can take those pains away. He alone can give you rest. He alone can take those heavy burdens you're bearing. He alone can love you like no one else can. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you this morning for this passage of Scripture. The worthy walk, the walk of humility, the walk that results in peace, the walk of wisdom. Father, I pray, we pray that we wouldn't live as fools, but we would live our lives in the light of your word. We would live our lives according to your wisdom. The wisdom with which you built this world, which you founded it upon. We praise you. I pray for those who don't know you this morning. Lord, I pray that they would seek out someone to speak to about these things. Pray that they would turn to the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for the believer today who is walking in wisdom. That he would excel, excel still more. That he would go and disciple and, and help others along that way. I pray for those who, maybe they are a Christian, but they're not living according to wisdom. Pray that you would press upon their soul, upon their heart, that They need to reconsider their lives. Reconsider how you could use them. Will use them. If they walk in wisdom. We thank you this morning for all these things. In Christ's name, amen.